Again, good morning. It's good to be with you. So we'll try and finish up on our study in Jonah, but I wanted to ask, are there any questions from a couple weeks ago when I did that brief history of a little bit of Lutheranism in America, especially from the 50s on? Any questions about that? Okay. So you remember the story of Jonah. Jonah's called to preach to the Ninevites. He balks, tries to flee to Tarshish, which is Rome. Or pardon me, to Spain. I misspoke. Spain. And uh, the Lord... uh, Causes him back to come back, swallowed by a whale, spit out on the ground, three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the fish. We observed last week that Jesus references that in Matthew 12. So this is all a prophecy of Jesus. Let's take a look at the sheet, if you would, please. And it's the bottom of the, of the first page, number three. So the narrative, that is the story, strictly speaking, it's not Jonah's story. <laughs> Instead, it's the story of God and how he deals compassionately with Jonah. And so what I'm saying is that God is the chief actor as we read Jonah. Okay? So I, I've tweaked this many times in the last few weeks when we studied this. Those of you who keep score, if you notice how many times God acts in this. Okay? So 3A, check it out. God's word begins and carries on all the action. So for example... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, 3, 3. The Lord hurled, notice the Lord hurled the great sea wind, or the the wind upon the sea, 1, 4, that cut off Jonah's getaway or evasion and confronted the pagan sailors with, notice, the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, 1-9. It repeats, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, 1-17. When the lot reveals the divine will falls on him, 1-7 and 1-14, and marks Jonah as the guilty one. The Lord speaks, and Jonah is returned to the land of the living, 2-6 and 2-10. The Lord's word spoken by Jonah works repentance in Nineveh, chapter 3, verses 2 to 9. The Lord spares the wicked city, 310. The Lord is the one who appoints the plant, 46, and the worm, 47, and the scorching east wind, 48, that forces the angry prophet to face and answer the question of God with which the story closes, chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. So what I'm trying to teach you here is when you read Jonah, the bottom line, this is God's story. It's a story without a hero. Jonah's not a hero. And this is is true for all the Old Testament. These Old Testament people that we read about, are they heroes? No, they're sinners just like you and me. They're not heroes. Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, said, oh, she's my sister. You can take her as my wife. Remember that? Didn't do so once, did twice. And he's the great father of faith. The point is, is this hero bit, get over it. You don't read the Old Testament as some romantic stories, but rather you read them as stories by which God deals with sinners and uses sinners as his creatures to carry on his work. Jonah's one of these people. He's a sinner just like all of us. I can guarantee you that if I was alive at Jonah's time and God called me to go preach to the Ninevites, I'd have done the same thing. I ain't doing it. 
because these are the most hated people on the face of the earth, especially if I'm an Israelite. These were ruthless people. Okay. It'd be like, this is just run with the analogy. It would be like if God called me to go preach to the Russians today, and especially you go preach to Putin. I'd say, no, thank you. Don't want any part of it. He's my enemy. Okay. So let me read number four. Jonah is like, a, is like the chief figure in some novels. He's like an anti-hero. He's a Hebrew who fears the Lord and can and does confess him as Lord, the omnipotent and omnipresent God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's 1-9. However, he attempts to flee from God's presence in 1-3. And yet he knows, as he prays from the deep, that salvation belongs to the Lord, 2-9. And that is that, that's the main thing of the book. And I contend, I said this a few weeks ago, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. That gives you a summary of not only this book, but the entire Bible. Salvation comes from the Lord. No wonder then that Jonah confesses that the Lord then is, in 4-2, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If any of you need a sheet, anybody need a sheet? I've got extras. Anybody? Here they are. You need an extra one. Any questions so far? Let's go to number five then. And then again, Jonah would rather die than see God's long-suffering and mercy in free and full operation. So, Jonah is put to shame by the behavior of the pagans, these sailors, to whom he begrudges God's mercy. A pagan ship captain summons the sleeping prophet to prayer. Check it out. Look at Jonah 1, verse 6. Got your Bibles there? Jonah 1, 6. The captain went to him. Remember, Jonah's on the boat trying to flee. The captain goes to Jonah and says, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God and maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Letter C. Pagan mariners row hard to save his forfeited life, and with reluctance obey his command to throw him overboard. Look at verses 13 and following of chapter 1. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. While we're at it, look at verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord. I want to say something about that, feared the Lord. Um, do you fear men or do you fear the Lord? That's a big question the pastor usually has to ask people sometimes. Who do you fear most, men or the Lord? If you fear men more than Lord, then you'll do what men want and not what the Lord wants. Let's keep going. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Back to page two, letter D, 5D. In fact, these sailors on this boat, their conscience is tenderer than Jonah's. After all, they feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, the verse we just read, whose word and will Jonah disregards. E, 
The people of Nineveh, what do they do when Jonah preaches? They repent. And they show their repentance by putting on sackcloth and adorning their bodies with ashes. And they believe God when his prophet threatens to overthrow their city. Take a look at chapter 3, 5 through 9. Chapter 3, 5 through 9. This is incredible. Jonah preaches, in 40 days the city's going to be wiped out. And verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. So not only are the humans going to fast, the animals are too. <laughs> don't you find that interesting? Verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Urgently on God. Isn't that interesting? This, this urgent talk reminds me of St. Paul when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. When he warns the Corinthian congregation, he says, now is the day of salvation. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he means this. He's talking to people who think like this. I'll repent tomorrow. Or I'll repent when I get my act together. Or after whatever's done. Then I'll repent. The king of Nineveh says, we're going to do it now. We're not going to put it off. And St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, don't put it off. Because how do you know God will give you tomorrow to repent? Huh? How do you know that? Thus, today is the day of salvation. And that's precisely what the Ninevites are told to do. So let's urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And that's, that's critical because I said these were ruthless people. Do you know what they did to their enemies? They did many, many wicked things to their enemies. They would impale them. They would hang them. Ruthless. That's part of what he says. We're not going to do that anymore. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Back to letter E on the sheet. So they believe God and they find him to be a merciful God. Look at verse 10. Look at your Bibles, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Back to letter E. So they find him to be a merciful God while the prophet Jonah, in a suicidal tantrum, protests against the undeserved compassion of God in chapter 4, the very compassion to which he owes his own life in chapter 2. So letter six. So the story is God's, and then the story ends with God's question, his rhetorical question. Should I not pity Nineveh? And Jonah's answer is not recorded. However, the story leaves no doubt as to how God wanted Jonah to answer it. What's the answer? Yes. Now, letter C then. Interestingly, that question is, again, is asked again by Jesus in his parable of the workers in the vineyard, when the generous owner asked the workers who growl at his grace given to others. The owner of the vineyard says this in Matthew 20, 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And to compare Matthew 18, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I'm going to illustrate that more in a moment. It's coming. Letter D. So the Old Testament and the New Testament unite, I would contend, to pose the question designed to be perpetually disturbing. To who? To smug people or smug churches who claim God's unlimited mercy for themselves but would limit it to other people. Like, oh yeah, God should have mercy on us, but not the Russians. To use a modern day example. They don't deserve it. Oh, do you? (laughs) Okay. You see the point? Let's keep going. And aside. Jonah 1.3, you know, Jonah tries to escape to Tarshish, which is believed to be Spain. In Romans 15.24, Paul states, I hope to see you in passing, namely the Romans, as I go to Spain. (laughs) So this is delicious for me, because Jonah, on one side of the cross, that means before Jesus comes, he tries to, to run to Spain to get away from preaching to Gentiles. But on the other side of the cross, namely after Jesus comes, God commissions Paul, an apostle, to the Gentiles, and yet the Holy Spirit prevents Paul from preaching in the region where Nineveh is, that's recorded in Acts 16, and this apostle's great desire is to go to, to, go to Spain to preach to them. That's just an aside. Now, do you have any questions about what I've covered so far? Yes? Correct. Correct. Pharaoh in Egypt, just the exact opposite. Uh, Moses and Aaron constantly saying, you need to let my people go. And then a plague. Okay. Then he, then he reneges. Then another plague. Okay. Then he reneges. Okay. Another plague. And he reneges. Till finally the tenth plague, done. Correct. Yes and no, because remember when God first calls Moses, Moses says, I'm not going to, I can't do this because I can't talk. I'm like a Mel Tillis. If you don't know who Mel Tillis is, look it up. He's dead, but I'm an old man and I remember Mel Tillis. What was, you know what, I, I, I better spell it out. He could sing, but when he talked, he mumbled. He stumbled and mumbled. What do you call that? Stutter, he stuttered. And Moses used that as an excuse as well. And so God said, okay, Aaron will talk for you. So yes and no. (laughs) Moses didn't want to do it. And by the way, don't you find it interesting all throughout the Bible, the people that God calls to preach his word, generally speaking, don't want to do it. Jeremiah didn't. What was his excuse? I'm too young. Okay. Just constantly. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I can't do this. Well, no, duh. Think about this. Just, this is another aside to piggyback on what you said, Mike. Imagine you're one of the 11 apostles in Matthew 28, and Jesus meets you on the mountain, the crucified but now risen Jesus. He meets you on the mountain, and he says, now I want you 11 
<laughs> I want you to make disciples of all nations. Now, if you're one of the 11, you're probably, you're probably saying, this ain't happening. I can't do that. Humanly speaking, this is an impossible task. So you make disciples of all nations, Jesus says, and this is how you do it. You baptize them in the triune name, and you teach them to observe everything I've commanded. Now, humanly speaking, this is an impossible task. But then Jesus gives the promise. What's the last part of Matthew 28? Lo, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. This is his promise that he gives to the 11, that as they carry out this task to make disciples, he's doing it. He's doing it. Joshua, the Lord's promise. Remember, Joshua, after Moses dies, Joshua is to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Humanly speaking, this is an impossible task. Remember, they sent spies into the promised land, and the spies came back. The majority of them said what? We can't do this. These people are giants. They will destroy us. And what was the promise to Joshua from the Lord? I will be with you. To Jeremiah, I'm too young. I can't do this. And God said, I will be with you. So every time God calls somebody to preach his word, to carry out his tasks, he gives this promise, but I'll be with you. That's Matthew 28. That's why Kuhlman doesn't despair, and that's why you should never despair as a congregation. Because the Lord is at work through his church carrying out this work, even though it looks impossible. That's an aside. Yes, please. Yep, that's right. And I'm just going to write this on the board just for emphasis. So repentance is when you turn from your sin, and then you turn to God, who has already turned to you in Christ. Now, <clears throat> this turning from your sin, is this something you wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I'm going to... This, God works this through his word. This is a miracle. When the Lord turns you from your sin, which is to say, I've sinned, I've blown it, that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. through the It's a miracle. You can't do this on your own. If you're left on your own, this never happens. So the Holy Spirit, through the Word, said, you are convicted by the Word of God to say, I have sinned, and I'm going to turn from this sin. And now the Holy Spirit does another thing through the Word. He then turns you to God's Word of forgiveness for Christ's sake. So you said contrition and faith. That's what this is. When you turn to God and say, I'm sorry, I've blown it, that's this. And now forgive me for Christ's sake. And both actions, turning from and turning to, are the work of the Holy Spirit in your life through the Word. Is that helpful? So our memory work for this quarter during Lent with the Sunday School, when we open up the John 20 text, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. That's the Word of the Lord. And you, you, you forgive the sins of people who say this, right here, who say, I've sinned, I'm sorry, forgive me. But when you're dealing with somebody who is unrepentant, and I'm just going to abbreviate, the unrepentant sinner says, I haven't sinned, and I deal with this all the time. And it goes like this. Who do you think you are, Reverend? <laughs> well, I'm a sinner like you. That's who I am. 
Well, you think you're better than I am. No, I'm not. I'm not better than anybody. I'm probably worse than you are. The point is, we want you to repent of your sin. Well, I haven't done anything wrong. Who do you... Get out of my house! So they, they won't confess their sin, and when they won't tell the truth about their sin, and see, they're resisting the Holy Spirit in this, when they will not confess their sin, well, when they won't say, I'm sorry, then they're not going to say what? Please forgive me for Jesus' sake. And that's why the Catechism quotes John 20, and when it answers the question, what is the office of the keys, it's that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to do two things. Forgive the sins of people who repent, who say, I've sinned, I've blown it, forgive me. And the church says, we're here for you. We're going to tell you Jesus died for you and you're forgiven. But if you don't want to be forgiven, then that, that's the way it's going to be with you. Good luck with that. And Kuhlman's way of talking is that's going to be hellacious for you on the last day. <clears throat> so I hope that's helpful for all of you. Now, what are, John 20 is the text in the small catechism. There are two other texts that you can bring into this discussion from the New Testament. What are they? Matthew 16, Matthew 18, when Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, on earth, is bound in heaven. That means before God. Whatever you loose on earth, namely whatever you forgive on earth, is then loosed or forgiven in heaven, namely before God. Look at the review on page three, number seven. So the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Jonah 3, 1 to 2. The first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah did what most of us would do if God sent us to a place we didn't want to go. He booked a cruise to Spain. <laughs> now, I would, I'd probably go to Cancun like some of you just did. <laughs> uh, he thought the Mediterranean might be nice this time of the year. Anything was better than going to Nineveh. Nineveh was a great city in the ancient world. It was the capital of Assyria, one of the most ruthless nations in the ancient world. And it was a world-class city, one of the largest cities at that time when Jonah lived. It's like New York City of today, Chicago, or Los Angeles. It was founded, if you're interested, I'm going to give you this, this history. Uh, Nineveh was founded by a man named Nimrod, a bloody and brutal man who had a legendary reputation as a hunter and warrior. So the city then lived up to its founder's reputation. This is in Genesis 10. That gives you the origins of Nineveh. Okay? It was a violent and cruel city. It plotted evil and mayhem against its neighbors and Israel. If you remember, the prophet Nahum charged the city with scheming against the Lord, wanton cruelty, prostitution, materialism, and arrogance. Sounds like the United States of America. Uh, no joke, no joke. Things don't change. Arrogance, especially the arrogance. I don't, you, no doubt you've been paying attention, but this is an aside. And I, I, I want to speak to the parents and grandparents here for just a moment. Um, what's happening, you know, with swimming, collegiate swimming right now, and this man who has gender dysphoria, Leah Thomas is how he calls himself, and now he swims as a woman. And now he won the NCAA 
etc. I, I just want to speak to parents and grandparents here about this. Um, I'm begging you to teach your children and grandchildren that if you're a man, you're a man, and if you're a woman, you're a woman. We, we, we must be bold and we must not give in to this. Because if you give in, if you give in, if you give in to this myth and this satanic lie, then every, any, everything goes. Everything's off the table. Uh, so we, I think with this thing that we're seeing now with, with athletics, we're at a breaking point, a tipping point, if you will, in America, about how things are either gonna go, one way or the other. Because if you believe that a man can have a baby and then a man can be a woman, and you, 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 you make that categorical, where no one can speak against it or even ask questions, we're, we're on a dangerous path. So what you can do is you can politely, when you discuss this with people, you can do the biblical evidence, of course, but you know, with the people who believe this stuff, the biblical evidence won't do much good. But here's what you could do. You could say, let's have an experiment, shall we? Let's have an experiment. Let's put 10 men on an island, five of them, they believe they're men. They dress like men, act like men. And we'll have five men with gender dysphoria who dress up like women and think they're women. And they think they can have children. And let's come back to that island in 100 years. What will we discover? Nobody will be on the island. They'll all be dead. Why is that? Because men cannot have babies. Listen to the science. Well, you understand my point. You're right. Yeah. But again, I'm going to say this one more time. Parents and grandparents, you must be proactive with your children and grandchildren on this because everything that they see, if, if you let them watch any television, and even if it's streaming television, every commercial pushes this and pushes every evil thing on the face of the earth. So we've got to be proactive. And finally then, you must be prepared, you must prepare your children and grandchildren to speak confidently and boldly about this and not be intimidated and bullied. So if you've been watching what's happening in Florida, on another side note, this is quite wicked how this is being framed. So ESPN, a day or two ago, the, uh, the announcers on ESPN before one of the collegiate games for the NCAA tourney, what did they do? They had a moment of silence. For what? To protest this bill, or maybe it's a law by now in Florida, that is going to outlaw grooming little children for all kinds of naughty things. And they, so you understand, are you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you don't, you need to look this stuff up. Because it's all being framed by, by the, the, the pro-LGBTQ plus crowd. I call them the alphabet mafia. And that's what they are, the alphabet mafia. It's being framed in the wrong way. And they're coming after what God has given to us for our good. And they want to destroy it on purpose. This is an active satanic work in the world to destroy God and what he's given to us for our good. There was a hand. Yes. Well, and they're also, yeah, they're pushing all this agenda now with all the Disney shows as well. Yeah. 
Right, so you have to be proactive and watch this stuff very carefully. Let's go back to this page four. <clears throat> so for a Hebrew like Jonah, it was enemy territory. It's a political menace. It's a threat. So Jonah heads in the opposite direction to Tarshish, a.k.a. Spain. But the Lord kicks up a great storm on the Mediterranean, and the ship is threatened, and the sailors all pray to their respective gods. They threw cargo overboard to lighten the load, and Jonah, where's he at? Well, he's laying below asleep. <laughs> Maybe he was seasick. <laughs> I don't know. But the captain of the ship went down, shakes him awake, and he says, how can you sleep at a time like this? Because the ship is sinking and all the men are praying. So why don't you call on your God and maybe he can help. Now I want to say something about this. Because sailors in those days, are, they were a religiously superstitious bunch. <laughs> maybe even you fishermen today are quite religiously, or like baseball players who won't change their socks. <laughs> okay? They believed in a cause and effect universe cause and effect universe. Namely, bad weather means someone's to blame. So they cast lots to see who was responsible for the storm. And as holy luck would have it, the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him who he was and where he came from. And he said, I'm a Hebrew who worships Yahweh. That's L-O-R-D in all caps in the Old Testament. The God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And that's what terrifies everyone in the story. Because the Lord, or Yahweh's reputation, was known even by those who did not worship Him. Everyone knew that you did not want to be on Yahweh's bad side in the ancient world. Seriously. I mean, if you paid attention, Mike brought up Pharaoh in Egypt. And if you were paying attention to how God dealt with Pharaoh in Egypt, you don't want to get on Yahweh's bad side. Because Pharaoh and all his chariots were destroyed in the Red Sea. The most mighty empire in the world destroyed by the Lord. So they asked Jonah, what have you done that Yahweh is mad at you? They knew he was running away from the Lord, but they didn't know why. Now to review, the storm grows worse, the sea grows rougher, and they asked Jonah, what should we do to you to make the storm stop? And Jonah said, throw me into the sea and it'll be calm. And as we reviewed earlier, the sailors tried to row the ship to shore instead. When they couldn't row anymore, and it was obvious they were going to sink, that's when they prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, for forgiveness, and they tossed Jonah overboard. And that's when the sea instantly becomes calm. Now Jonah instantly then becomes a sign of Jesus, calming the sea by being swallowed up into it and spending three whole days in the belly of death or in this case, the belly of the whale. At one level, the book of Jonah is about the death and resurrection and the mystery of Christ who works through death and resurrection, as we looked in Matthew 12. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any sign. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, who is three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That's the only sign they got, Matthew 12. So again, Jonah is a prophecy of what's to come, namely Jesus. Now, you can do a lot of things while you're in the belly of a whale. <laughs> you can do a lot of praying, and that's what Jonah does, and it's recorded in Jonah. Jonah prayed to God, and he prayed a wonderful psalm about how God works life in death. Life in death. Let me illustrate. 
course, Jesus is the, is the classic example. But let me illustrate another way. I'll never forget when I had a conversation with one man. I can't remember his name right offhand because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But he was, two weeks ago when I gave you the story of the Seminex and the walkout and all the heartache in the Missouri Synod, this layman was one of the laymen who blew the whistle on all these false teachers at the seminary in St. Louis. He, he was still alive, and I think he still is alive. He's got to be in his 90s. But he was alive at that time, and he blew the whistle. Well, when Rob and I went to go visit Pastor Christensen and his wife, Liesel, and their family one time when they lived in Virgin near Virginia Beach in Virginia, when he was at the naval uh, station there, I had an opportunity to speak with this man. And it was a delightful conversation. And it was at this time that the Missouri Senate was also going through some struggles as, as well. And he was so afraid of the Missouri Senate dying. <laughs> and I looked at him politely, and I said, well, that's the Lord's cup of tea. The Lord's cup of tea is bringing life out of death. So let's push it another way. Are you afraid of you dying? Are you? Are you afraid? Don't be, because the Lord's cup of tea is raising the, the dead. <laughs> so I hope that's helpful. So salvation is from Yahweh, 2.9. That is the clincher. So put salvation and Yahweh together, and you get the name Jesus, Yeshua. Bottom of page four. Three days later, the fish belched, belched or lurched Jonah up on a beach somewhere. With seaweed stuck in his hair, steeped in gastric juices, Jonah heads to Nineveh and preaches the word of God to the Ninevites. He preached only one day. And the entire city, including the king, repented in sackcloth. Everyone fasted and prayed to God for mercy. And God had mercy on that great city, and he does not destroy it. Now page five. You'd think that they would all live happily ever after, wouldn't you? You would think that Jonah would be pleased that Nineveh repented and turned to the true and living God. But he wasn't. He said to God, see, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> I love that. Oh, <clears throat> that's why I ran off to Spain. I know how you are, God. You're gracious. You're compassionate. You're slow to anger. You abound in love. I just knew you'd let them off the hook and forgive them. <clears throat> so what's Jonah do? He sits down on a hill overlooking the city to see what would happen next. And that's when the sun becomes hot and beats down on Jonah. And what's the Lord do? He provides a vine with nice big leaves to keep the sun off Jonah's head. But Jonah's not happy about the vine, or he was happy about the vine. And the next day, God sent a worm to eat the vine, and that's when Jonah's not too happy. And then God asked him this question. Do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah said, yeah, I've got a right to be angry. I'm mad enough to die. But the Lord said, Jonah, you're more concerned about this vine, which grew up one day and died the next than you are about 120,000 people who don't have a clue, not to mention many cattle. Don't you think I should be concerned for them? And that's precisely how the book ends. Should I not be concerned about this great city? Let's push it a bit further. This world is full of people who haven't a clue. And shouldn't God be concerned about them as well? What's the answer? The answer is yes. Number eight. So the book of Jonah is really about God's grace in Christ. And I mean, literally, universal grace. I don't mean everybody's going to be saved, 
but I mean that God in Christ Jesus is gracious to every sinner. He doesn't exclude anybody. Let's put it another way. Did Jesus die for all? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. He died for all, and he died for all sin. Now, there are people who say, no, thank you, like Pharaoh and others, and they're going to end up in hell. If you don't believe what Jesus, Jesus says this, Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You don't believe? It's unbelief that condemns you. Yes? Correct, correct. So that's where it gets a little bit interesting when you talk to someone, well, you can't, don't baptize your baby. That's all. You know, I mean, if you don't want to baptize your child, that's up to you. But don't condemn me for baptizing your child, because it says all, all. Yeah, correct. And Peter, who was there uh, on the mountain in Matthew 28, when he preaches in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon, remember this? When he cuts the heart of the people to whom he preaches in Acts 2, they ask, what should we do? And he says, repent. And what's the heart of repentance? Believe what I just told you. Repent and be baptized. And what do he say? Do you know this, folks? If you don't know this, you need to memorize Acts 2, 38 to 39. If you're into memorizing parts of the Bible, here's a great one. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. He learned that in Matthew 28. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this promise, namely forgiveness and gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all. He learned that in Matthew 28. Or to put it another way, Jesus died for all. He wants all to be baptized and taught. But now, this is all in the way of gift. You don't force gifts on people. So if somebody doesn't want to be baptized and taught, we don't force them. Then it wouldn't be a gift. So people who refuse, we're sad. Okay. Let me try and continue with this. Thank you for your questions. They're awesome. Where am I at? <clears throat> Help me out. Where did I lose it? I'm on number eight, right? Yeah. So God so loved the world. Remember John 3, 16? Undeserved kindness for the world. The story of Jonah reminded the Old Testament people that Israel wasn't some cozy country club of the elect. It wasn't a private club for the chosen few. It was supposed to be an elect sign of God's salvation for the world. Salt and light for the world. It was supposed to be a nation of priestly people whose priesthood was to proclaim the name of Yahweh, the Lord, to the ends of the earth and declare that salvation comes from the Lord, as it says in chapter 2. But instead, Israel treated Yahweh like a local deity a national God or a private possession, as if they were God's favored nation. And they acted as though they had a monopoly on God's name and as if they alone could call upon it. And it angered them to think that God would have mercy on other nations, on their enemies, or on people who made their lives miserable, like those bloodthirsty, whoremongering, uncircumcised Ninevites. So when we speak of God's grace, His kindness, undeserved, unmerited, unearned, we are talking about his universal grace in Christ, his kindness towards the whole world. It's the amazingly gracious news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, 2 Corinthians 5. 
that by the life, death, and resurrection of one man, God has made peace with the world. And the church, the new Israel, like the Israel of old, is supposed to be a messenger of that good news, a goodwill, good news ambassador for God. Now I want you to think about this for a moment here. There is no one who is outside of Jesus' reconciling death as far as God is concerned. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of the world, the light and life of the world. Now I'm going to tell you why this is so important. If Jesus didn't die for the whole world, then how can you be sure that he died for you? You can't. So this is why this is important. Because Jesus reconciled the world to his Father in his death, you can know for sure that he died for you. You understand how important this is? Okay, let's go on. Okay, so the biblical definition of a true Hebrew, whether, whether these are Hebrews who live before Christ's coming or who live after Christ's coming, a true Israelite is a faither. Read Romans 4, okay? Romans 4, Abraham is given as the primary example of what it means to be a true Hebrew. He believes in God's promise to send who? The one who's going to die on the cross and rise from the dead on the third day. So if you're a Jew and you believe God's promise that Jesus is the Savior, you are a true Hebrew. Now, if you're a Jew, and you may be circumcised, but if you don't believe this, you are not a true Hebrew. And that's what we have right now, to piggyback on what you said, the 1948 nation of Israel, established by the United Nations, of Jews who do not believe in this promise. Benjamin Netanyahu, the former Prime Minister of Israel, he is not a true Hebrew. Why? Because he doesn't believe in Jesus. Seriously, folks, you've got to read the New Testament very clearly on this. Romans 4 is a classic example. So is Paul's letter to the Galatians. You may be circumcised, and you may be able, you may be able to trace your family history all the way back to Abraham, but if you don't believe in Jesus, you are not a Hebrew. So am I, am I, I'm circumcised, yes, because, you know, that was the medical thing to do, and maybe most of you males are. But I'm a Gentile. But am I a true Hebrew in the biblical sense? I am. Because I believe in Jesus. So old Israel, the true old Israel, is the one who believes the promise of the coming Savior. And the church of today is the new Israel. Jew and Gentile. Read Ephesians. Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus who died and rose again. They're the true Hebrews. Now, I, I, I'm going I'm to be very provocative here because I can't help myself. You know how Kuhlman is. Can't help myself. Now, Billy Graham, who I grew up watching on television, I watched his crusades on television all the time. Anytime Billy Graham was on, I watched Billy Graham. And on the one hand, Billy Graham could preach the law in all its severity and convict you of your sin. And at the same time, Billy Graham could, could properly preach the gospel 
namely Jesus Christ who died for you and rose for you, okay? But Billy Graham didn't, didn't believe what? <laughs> I gotta finish now, don't I? <laughs> Billy Graham believed this, that you can be a Jew and not believe in Jesus and you'll still go to heaven. And I'm not joking. That was one of his big weaknesses. I'm gonna repeat this. Billy Graham, on the one hand, could preach the law faithfully. On the one hand, could preach the gospel faithfully. But be careful, Billy Graham, he had many weaknesses, and one was this, that he said, if you're a Jew and you don't believe in Jesus, you'll still go to heaven. That completely contradicts the Bible. Don't believe me? Look it up on YouTube. Billy Graham interview with uh, Larry, Larry King. You know, Larry King used to do these interviews. He may have, yeah, yeah. Let's say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.